Hello and welcome to the best AI questions and answers on Brains Bite Back. A world with no jobs. AI and UBI discussed by ex-NASA engineer and political economist. One thing which I really like to put to both of you, I have this preconception, I don't know if it's true, but when I do hear these headlines of AI taking jobs but also giving jobs back, um, in my mind it's like it takes jobs from some people, say for example truckers, yep. their, their job might be automated pretty soon, I don't know when, um, but it looks like they're going to be out of work pretty soon. But then when we say AI gives jobs, in my mind I can imagine it's college graduates who've just graduated from some computer or some kind of subject relating to AI or some kind of programming or something technical. Am I correct in thinking that as there's a wave of people kind of exiting the workforce because of AI, then there's also a wave of people entering because of AI and they're two very different types of people? Or um, I suppose, Peter, do you think that my, <laughs> my uh, preconception is accurate or am I completely uh, misconstrued? <laughs> well, there is a huge number of openings for AI people at the moment. They can command huge salaries. But I think we have to look at where are the jobs being created and where are they being lost? Because if you go back 100 years and look at the automobile revolution, someone who used to drive a handsome cab with, with horses could relatively easily make the transition to driving a motorized vehicle as a, as a cab. But if we have now, uh, for instance, uh, people making fast food burgers being replaced by machines that can do that, uh, are they likely to be able to transition to the jobs of the people that design those machines? Are the truckers likely to be able to transition to the jobs of the people that design the automated trucks? There seems to me that there could be a, a large disparity there that, and that we've uncoupled the progress uh, engine, if you will, from the uh, places where its effects are being applied. I agree. I, I don't necessarily know that um, <clears throat> the people exiting, you know, one type of work will be replaced with a, a, a totally new type of person. I think the majority of the jobs that are going to grow in the future are really going to be service, you know, sector jobs. So it'll be people honing soft skill sets to communicate with other people around the technologies that they're using. So sure, you know, trucking jobs, cashier jobs, et cetera, they will they will start to become automated away through our use, our better use of business process that will eventually feed AI to make the most normalized decisions as it possibly can. But uh, again, we've, we've seen a surge in those types of jobs. And I think it is necessary, though, as we talk about the changes in jobs to sort of, when we think about universal basic income uh, as a pivot, to also state that... Uh, that there's a broader moral issue around universal basic income that is trying to decouple us from conversations about jobs alone as a means to income or further as a, a method of understanding one's worth in society. So the UBI, while I am normally touting its relevance because I think that we have a very real uh, productivity-related mechanism to distribute it, meaning I give people ownership stake of productive processes, right? The, 
the, the real deal behind that is even if you do leave a trucking job and you don't go into the service sector to manage someone's anxiety for talking to AI all day, and you say, I don't want to get a job. I want to re-explore my life altogether. You should have the right to do that as well. You should not have to earn the right to live. And by earn, I mean, you should not have to toil away the whole time just to be able to stay alive because it's inhumane. So, so over the course of the past, let's say 200,000 years, we've only talked about people's value relative to how they work or what type of work they do, meaning what type of toiling they do. And in the future, in the very near future, I think in this new decade, in the, the 20s, we will start to see evidence of people being valuable without the coupling of normalized work, meaning people should be able to get paid if AI is understanding how they exist and providing them products and services because they are an input or creating the initial demand to the productivity of products and services coming to them. But yeah, I think that's, that's really where we're going. We're decoupling from jobs altogether. They will exist, but they will not be the sole measure for who gets to participate in society. And we will not talk about people's relevance as which jobs they move away from and which jobs they navigate towards. Well, I, I agree. And if I could jump in here, I think one of the, the, uh, the fundamental uh, broad issues here is the question of whether our current mechanism of wealth distribution will survive the changes in productivity that or artificial intelligence and similar technology can bring about because we've seen this pattern over the last 50 years that productivity gains from new technology have accrued to a, a small percentage of the population and have not been distributed over the, the rest. And so the likely outcome of even more technology that automates even more jobs is, is that it would not get shared with those people? Where is it going to end up? And do we have to change our fundamental ways in which we think about and engineer wealth distribution? Uh, the way I like to introduce this with an analogy is to say, look, think back about 100 years or so, or maybe not even that much, to visions of the future that they had then. And they would always be utopian, right? You would have people in saying, well, in the future and it would be a lot of people that were well-dressed and incredibly well-informed on how their economy worked and uh, limitless abundance. And they would be not wanting. There would be little to no inequality. And if you could go back to someone 50 years ago and time travel and say, well, here I am, I've come from 2019. Uh, what questions do you have? And they say, well, what sort of things do you have? Yeah. And you explain the internet and microwaves and space travel and all and, and so forth, all this technology. And you, they would say, wow, that's incredible for you to have those things at that time. There must be no one in your time who is unnecessarily sick or poor or hungry. And then you would have to say, well, not so much. We, we still pretty much have those things. And <laughs> we, could have, we could have got rid of them, but we just didn't figure out how to distribute the money or the food or the benefits due to a, a paucity, a deficit in our imagination of how to do that. We are hung up on the notion that people have to prove their worth. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
This episode is brought to you by Publicize. Publicize is a digital PR company that stands out from other legacy agencies. They don't charge large retainers or simply send out press releases when you have something to announce. Instead, they have a transparent and modular approach to PR that ensures you only pay for what you need. They refer to this approach as growth communications for everyone, and it makes them the default option for tech startups looking to take their first steps in PR. If you want more information, you can request a free PR assessment at publicize.co and find a tailored PR strategy that works for you. And exclusively for Brainspike back listeners, for a limited time only, those who sign up for a 12-month package will receive one month free. To claim this promotion, visit publicize.co slash BBB. MIT Professor on Institute's new course Safeguarding Our Humanity in the Age of AI. As soon as I heard the course, I was sold. I wanted to have you on here because I think it's something that's just incredible. It seems like everyone's talking about AI and yeah, for, for a variety of reasons, it seems like it's going to impact our lives in many ways. The last podcast I hosted was about AI and UBI and about how it's going to impact our workforce and what our world might look like when um, AI does everything and we all live off UBI if that ever becomes a, a reality. But yours, I think, is one of the most interesting because it's the most vital part of AI to understand is the ethics of it. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that this is something what you're exploring or what you're looking to explore and what you're talking about is perhaps the most pressing part of AI and what we're going to face. I did see um, in your course, uh, the description states that um, this course takes on an existential threat of AI by exploring what is most important about human life. This means redirecting our thinking from what is merely advantageous to what is genuinely good, from a blind belief in efficiency to considered understanding what is best in human life. How do you draw the line between optimal efficiency and what is best for human life? Well, in a certain sense, um, they're actually uh, opposed to each other. So tend to think of efficiency as good, especially in my field, engineering really focuses on efficiency. Um, but do we really want optimal efficiency? I mean, clearly, if we're sitting in traffic in our, our vehicles being frustrated because things aren't moving quickly, we'd like it to be more efficient. Um, but, is, but do we want everything to be more efficient? I mean, let, let's go to the extremes. And, and, it's, and it's very kind of you to, um, to say such nice things about our course. And one of those lines, and, and thanks for reading that quote, because what I found, as I said, we've been teaching with colleagues here uh, ethics for engineers for some time, and it's been pretty broad. And what's been so fascinating about incorporating AI and, and really having, of course, focusing on the ethics of AI is that I found that AI gets down to the root, the, the foundations of what it means to be human just directly. And so, so circling back then to the question of optimal efficiency, we all have lots of emails in our inboxes and all kinds of things, spend hours and hours a day on our computer. What if we could make it responses more efficient um, and you know, half the amount of time that spent responding? Is that actually a good thing? Well, first of all, shouldn't we be thoughtful about our responses I mean, we want to respond to friends, colleagues, as friends and colleagues, not just 
in an automated fashion, like a machine would respond. And then let's go a step further. What if it would be more efficient if we were somehow melded to our computers? You know, our brain was wired and this, this has been, these ideas have been around for, for decades, longer even. Um, it's, but does that really help us in the end? It may make us more efficient uh, in performing computer optimizations, but is that going to make us better people? And, and is that, like, what, what does it mean to be human? Um, and start to talk about that even more. But that, that's at least an initial answer to this question, which is really a broad question. Deep fakes. When seeing is no longer believing. I think since deciding to do this topic and reaching out to you, I have either been more conscious of the news articles surrounding deep fakes, where I haven't seen them before, maybe haven't recognized them. But it seems like this is a technology which is snowballing in the sense that as AI gets better, it gets better and better and better at a rate which just is constantly accelerating. So when you say that you perhaps don't encounter many cases just right now, I can imagine that within a year or two years at the rate things are accelerating, this could go from zero to 100 very rapidly. Definitely, I, I totally agree. I think we're looking at six to nine months where we're going to have deep fakes generated that are impossible to detect. And that's going to be a very interesting reality for all of us to be living in. But you're, you're absolutely correct. It's been accelerating at incredible speeds. And it's just, it's putting an incredibly sophisticated tool in the hands of the unsophisticated. And they can disseminate and leverage that in any way they see fit. And yet, to your point about when you start thinking about deepfakes, you will notice that it is getting a lot of coverage in the media, which is, I think, really positive. Because one of the things that I'm striving to do is to raise awareness among the general public and people in positions of power, because if they are at least aware that deepfakes exist, then they can look at audio and video material through a critical lens and not just see or believe everything they see or believe everything that they hear. Because we're, we're moving to a reality where that's no longer, seeing is no longer believing and hearing is no longer believing. Suicide prevention using predictive AI. There's two main things that really interested me about this topic is that one, first of all, it's, I'm interested to know like how you can measure like preventative measures. Basically, in the simplest way possible, I think you might have answered the question there, but I had this idea in my mind of if AI is predictive of, say, suicide, for example, it seems that like if you do create a AI machine, whatever, uh, an algorithm, and then it test someone to see if they have this kind of like a propensity perhaps towards suicide. I suppose, how do you test that? How do you, how do you first develop that without going like, oh, this person has um, a potential or high, is at high risk to commit suicide? How can you understand that they're actually going to do it without stopping them? It's hard to describe. What I'm trying to say is, uh, and apologies, I'm not really structuring it correctly, but if you get someone and you say, oh, this person's at high risk, you're not really going to know about the true outcome or whether or not the prediction is accurate unless you leave them to it. But then to leave them to it is obviously a huge ethical issue. How do you first get past that? It seems like a real chicken and egg situation. 
<laughs> so Sam, that's one of the um, that's one of the grand challenges of of this work in general. Um, not just true for suicidality, but it is so cogent for that problem space and for that particular problem because it's such a tragic problem. And as we know, rates of suicide are going up despite a lot of really wonderful efforts to prevent suicide. And suicides are certainly being prevented day to day, but yet rates in aggregate are still going up. So one of the things I say a lot is that prediction is not the same as prevention. Prevention can be enabled by prediction, but prediction alone, the best algorithm in the world by itself, if it's not connected to people and process, won't make any difference. It's really important that we put these algorithms into the context of the places in which they're going to be used. And we try to do that to sort of speak to your question for the reasons you mentioned. One of the challenges is if we're successful, and we actually, one of my grad students recently wrote a paper, uh, Matt Leonard recently wrote a paper in the uh, Journal of American Medical Informatics Association about the fact that even if we're successful, we put these algorithms into practice and people start to follow them, we're actually going to make the problem even harder in the future from a modeling perspective, because now we're moving the needle in such a way that the model, if we don't update it, will diverge. Um, but even putting that aside, broadly speaking, the gold standard of what we're trying to do is taking these algorithms, putting it in the context of a larger intervention. So the prediction is one part of a very complex space. And so the providers and the patients can interact with that recommendation, a prediction, and do something about it. And to understand whether it works or not, we need to do that in the type of the world that I live in, in an academic medical center in places like, like Vanderbilt. What we try to do is in a large enough trial setting, frankly, we test an intervention with the technology against an intervention without that technology. And if we do that in the right way, looking for a long enough time on enough people who've had enough time for this potentially to happen, and we can start to tease apart whether the intervention plus technology is better than the intervention alone. So that's a pretty simple answer to your question, but it's be, for all the reasons that you mentioned, we can't necessarily do this at an N of one um, and really necessarily trust those results, at least not today. So what we're trying to do is do that in a large enough group such that we can get a sense that, yes, this does seem to be making a difference and we try to understand why there may be a difference. And uh, Ron, I saw an interview with um, you recently, I think it was in Seed, yeah. and you mentioned that um, behavioral signals is working in this space. How, what, what work is behavioral signals doing at the moment in this area? Yeah, we're, we're working on a variety of different use cases. So, for example, I mean, in this particular aspect, we're looking at the healthcare without empathy aspect of the healthcare is without care. But now technology, specifically AI, are emerging in different sectors of healthcare, either robots in the surgical suite, virtual assistants uh, helping medical staff to do their jobs better or social robots for home care. I mean, voice itself is a remarkable instrument humans have to make life easier while communicating with the machines. It can deliver valuable information like how I feel, where I'm in pain, anxiety, stress, sadness, joy. And so we're using a variety of those use cases to augmenting uh, voice interactions, whether it is human to human or whether it is human to machine. In terms of specific aspects from uh, suicide prevention, we've been working with certain amazing companies that have focused on patients with depression. And so they're focused on that data set and they're looking at how do we understand depression? How do we prevent depression? And so the value add we bring to that equation is specifically helping understand those dynamics uh, between a care provider and a patient and helping the care provider get a better sense of how the patient's feeling at a given moment of time. And the core magic behind all of this is that one, human voice is a very good indicator of uh, how the human's feeling at a given moment of time, which means the emotional state of mind and the behavioral state of mind. We can, we can deduce that very, very accurately. 
and uh, more so than other models such as uh, the facial expressions or body language, et cetera. So the tone of voice is very, very accurate. So once we've deduced that, then we could apply that to specific context and we say, now that we know how you feel and irrespective of what you're saying, we have a good sense of how you actually feel. We can apply that to predict what actions or outcomes will uh, happen in the near future or what you're actually going to do in the near future. So then you take that and then you build specialized classifiers. So for example, when we apply that capability into uh, the typical traditional voice of customer use cases in a business context, we can predict if a debt holder is going to pay their debt or not pay their debt or if a client's going to buy or not buy by listening to that interaction. But when we apply the similar capabilities into a doctor-patient uh, interaction between, say, a, a care provider and a, and a patient who potentially or presumably suffering from depression, then we can predict a, a propensity for suicidal behavior. And that's, that's really powerful. So we're going behind the scenes and we're, we're looking and we're, uh, we're analyzing those interactions and we're giving those essential cues to, to, the, to the care provider, to the doctor, to help them make better decisions. Talking about the previous point, right? So from a preventative measure uh, aspect, I think what Colin said was, uh, it was absolutely accurate. I mean, I really don't have much to add to that, except for the fact that prevention, it can't really be done without necessarily the human element. So AI, as, as advanced AI is getting, it's still very much a tool. And it's often erroneous and it's not completely accurate. And so it's important when you're getting those signals is to sort of weave in and introduce the human element in it so that the human can take over. And I think a lot of that prevention comes from having that human make that decision based on whether it is making a decision on someone's ability to pay the debt or if they're making a decision on, uh, hey, potentially this patient is suicidal, so now some preventative measure needs to be taken. Uh, that's complicated. There's a lot of subjective aspects to it. I don't think NAI can be relied on from a preventative measure standpoint, and that's when the human element needs to be weaved in into those interactions. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Publicize. If you want to find out more about their PR packages, the free resources they have available, or receive a free PR assessment, you can visit their website, and for a limited time only, Brains Bite Back listeners will receive one month free with a 12-month package at publicize.co slash bbb. How AI is advancing surgery. I was thinking about this the other day and I'm, I'm really happy to be alive at this moment in time because I feel that one day if I if I'm old I'm 26 right now but if I ever make it to like 80 or something I've got grandkids I can imagine that perhaps perhaps that they might say to me like wow like when you were born like humans operated surgeries like they let humans do surgeries or yeah or they they let humans drive cars and I love the thought that from the moment I'm born like humans operate everything and then the moment i die it'll be like that'll be like the completely opposite way around they'll be like wow they let humans like, do you know about the error rate that humans have like <laughs> yeah and you know we, we there's so many robotic surgeries that are taking place every day now but it's still a human that's that's you know manipulating these devices one thing that i did think about you know in preparation for this is potentially removing skin cancers would be an area that you could automate that procedure 
if you had a, a area of skin cancer on your arm, if you could imagine, you know, holding your arm very steady and, and an imaging device coming over and mapping out exactly where the surgical tool needs to come in and remove the tumor, the next part of the process would be a technology like what Perimeter has developed, images to make sure that all the tumor has been removed. And then the final step would be another device comes in and does the suturing automatically. And it's because it's, a, it's a not a very invasive surgery. You're not opening up the patient. You're not interacting with any other um, organs or vessels or anything like that. So you could see maybe it's being implemented in, in surgical settings like that, where it's much lower risk. That's all. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.